Hello, welcome to the sixth and final episode of this series of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. I'm Gemma Milne, a science writer, podcaster and researcher. And in Looking Glass, we want to examine the details of how the world works and what can make it better. Challenging conversations about our society, exploring ideas and innovations across disciplines to create a blueprint for a future world. In this second series, we've been examining what it takes to build a green economy. Not just what we need to do at some point in the future, but what we need to do now to make sure it can really become a reality for generations to come. In each episode, we've spoken to brilliant minds who are doing the work now, from the first ever Future Generations Commissioner Sophie Howe, to the economist trying to change how we think about debt and Pettifer. But since this is a podcast of the Institute of Physics, it seems right we bring in two physicists at different points in their careers to reflect on all the themes that have come up. If you've not listened to all the episodes yet, go and listen. Um, You can find them all wherever you found this one. But here's a rough guide to what we've covered. In episode one, we discussed how to be a good ancestor, making sure that current and future generations are at the heart of all the decisions we make today. Episodes two and three saw us dive into the big energy issue, how we'll be using it in the future, how we'll supply that demand, and of course, what that change in supply will mean for global relationships and supply chains. In episode four, we asked how we'll make sure we have the right workforce for a green economy, not just the people who maintain energy systems, but everyone that will contribute to the huge global shift we'll see in all sectors. And last time, we spoke to an economist and a lawyer about their grand ideas for what this green new economy could really look like. Ambitious, perhaps, but they argued necessary. So let's introduce our guests for this episode, two physicists who will reflect with me on a few of the many issues we've raised this series. Luke Wheeler is a data integrity analyst at Carbon Intelligence, which is a sustainability consultancy. He holds a BSc in theoretical physics and an MSc in global energy technologies and systems, both from the University of Birmingham. His university research looked at how specific sectors and geographic areas could employ low carbon energy technologies and energy policies to decarbonise. Professor Martin Freer is the director of the Birmingham Energy Institute and the Birmingham Centre for Nuclear Education and Research, both at the University of Birmingham. He's also head of nuclear physics there, where he taught Luke. His research is conducted internationally and he's actively engaged in promoting research and educational programmes to support the UK's investment in nuclear power generation. We began by reflecting on episode two, when Dr Madeleine Morris expressed that there's a difference between identifying the sectors that most need to change versus identifying the sectors who use the most energy. She highlighted that there's a lack of change in the heat in transport sectors, for example. I asked Martin how he responded to that. At least in a UK context, this is uh, the key key challenge that we face as we go forward with the energy system. So, so as was explored, we've done pretty well in decarbonising the grid, the electricity grid. Uh, and what has happened with, with wind power and the innovation around wind power and driving down of the, the costs, all sorts of innovations, supply chains, innovation in markets, the contract for the difference approach. This, is, this has been extraordinary. Um, but uh, there is a danger that we just equate energy and electricity. Um, energy is much, much more than that. And the real challenges that we have if we want to reach net zero are not necessarily in, in how we decarbonize electricity, although that's important. It really is how we, how we decarbonize transport. Good progress is being made there, uh, and there was a lot of good discussion around that. 
Um, so electric vehicles, and we, we're all encouraging ourselves to uh, switch to an electric vehicle. Uh, but if one thinks about the challenging parts of transport, those will be heavy goods vehicles, freight, etc. So what do we do there? Uh, and uh, hydrogen seems to be a good option, but actually... How on earth do you generate the scale of hydrogen which is required? It's got to be green hydrogen. There's lots and lots of things to, to work out there. But there's, there's, there's good progress. So for, for me, the, the biggest challenge that we face really is around decarbonisation of heat. And um, the reason it's such a big challenge is that unlike electricity, where you can just change um, uh, a coal power station for an offshore wind farm and people don't really notice. What, what you have to do with heat is you have to interfere with 25, 27 million, 28 million homes and all the people that live in those homes have got to change the way that they deliver that, that heating. And this is just extraordinarily complicated, extraordinarily expensive, so it's probably going to be half a trillion pounds to, to deliver. But you know the, the number of components that we need to think about there in how you deliver that low-carbon heating solution is extraordinary. Um, so we sit at the beginning of a decade and a half, at least, I think, of really quite a, a massive upheaval in our, in our energy system and the way that we live with energy. Well, just sticking with you, Martin, on that point for a second. I mean, you've you've outlined um, the problem really, really brilliantly. Um, for you, though, what what's the sort of first shift that has to be made in order to make this change? Because as you say, it's it's multifaceted, but it's also very expensive. There's a lot of people we have to convince of different things. Do you, is there sort of a, I don't know, a catalyst, maybe a, a first step that might start to get the the ball rolling down the hill, as it were? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> if the answer is no, that's fine. <laughs> if, if only life was so simple, and, and and really this you know this cuts across much of the energy system. It, it's complex. There's, there's kind of many different interlocking components that you need to more or less move at the same time. So if we stick with the the heating problem, you know, it's or challenge. Uh, you know, where are we going to get our energy from? Is it going to be electricity and heat pumps? Are we going to have district heating systems? Are we going to have hydrogen boilers and hydrogen? But you know, which one? Um, uh, where where was where's the money going to come from? Um, so it's it's certainly not going to be uh, in the ways that we've usually generated money. Uh, or finance for this. Uh, so we're going to need to tap into pension funds and patient capital, all those sorts of things. We're going to need new new ways of regulating new incentives. Uh, and, and we're going to hold, we, we, it's a bit of a cliche, but we're going to need that, that whole system's thinking in order to move this forward. The heart of it, though, is the consumer. Uh, at the moment, uh, the consumer... Well, some consumers have, have picked up on that there is going to be a transition, but for a large fraction of our society, they, they haven't. Uh, and in fact, they've not really twigged the, 
the imperatives around net zero and the fact that the UK is committed to decarbonising by 2050. For, for many people, that's just not on their radar. They've got too many other challenges that they have in life. So uh, what we need to do is build confidence, build that consumer engagement. So for me, actually, where we need to be is delivering a couple of very large-scale pilot programmes in the UK uh, to kind of build up the supply chain, build up that consumer confidence, build up the markets, or build up the understanding. Uh, and, I, and I think we're close to being able to do such things. So speaking of complexity and, and kind of thinking about all the different um, stakeholders, but I guess different levels or scale of engagement of type of individuals from consumer up to government, We've obviously focused a little bit here on UK. Luke, I want to turn to you. I know that your research um, that you did was surrounding how India might be able to make a transition to a low carbon um, economy and how that would provide opportunities. And Bemi and Daniel, we talked a lot about the real array of outcomes for nations um, as we make the transition to low carbon energy systems. And in, in, in their episode, we talked a lot about, for instance, the opportunities in Nigeria. Um, I wonder what your thoughts were listening to that conversation and, and also hearing what, what Martin has to say about this sort of, uh, shall we say, UK nation-specific approach. I mean, how hopeful do you feel for nations that typically perhaps haven't been able to lead energy conversations or even um, be part of the conversations that we are having here from a media perspective around all this? I think the key thing actually comes back to the discussions in the in the last episode of the podcast around financing. But I think in terms of like what I was looking at I've, um, for my research, it was all to do with how do we get everything to, to line up simultaneously? How do we meet the challenges from, from India's nationally determined contributions and align this with their targets for the sustainable development goals from the UN and then tie this all together, which is also comes back to this idea of being able to solve everything synchronously and tying into Martin's point about like net zero not being on people's radars we need to be able to couple solving the climate crisis with solving what's on people's radars so you know what your guests were talking about was this idea that you know the global south can basically skip a generation of technology they don't need centralized distribution much like they don't have landlines I think that is a very powerful powerful point but much like Nigeria India has this kind of internal reliance on fossil fuels in terms of the fact that it has a really large coal industry, lots of coal-fired power plants and lots of jobs lying in coal. So the the challenge to navigate there is not so much technical as it is socio, you know, socio-economic and socio-political, um, which again ties into what we were talking about, about a just transition in the last episode. So I'm kind of bouncing around different things here. I think the technical solutions exist. Um, you know, we've got, you know, these, we've got these really, uh, this capacity to kind of transform what's happening at a local level with micro generation, with distributed grids, by having intelligent kind of, you know, solutions based around kind of automation and, you know, perhaps even artificial intelligence, being able to manage all these things and, and link up different parts of these grids that are kind of growing simultaneously. But the problem is, is that we need to put our money where our mouth is. A big part of India's NDC is actually saying that, um, you know, <laughs> the company, the, the countries that have said and have committed to climate finance actually need to, you know, you know buck up and, and give, you know, the aforementioned climate finance. It's called like it's a, I think it's like a conditional part of, of their NDC. So I think that's a really kind of key point is, is to say the technology does exist, the capacity is there, 
there have been, you know, massive kind of leaps forward in electrification in India and having access to the grid. But in order to kind of make this net zero target and to make this generational shift, we need to be able to say, okay, we're going to get people from A to B and maintain their jobs and livelihoods and, and making sure that their well-being is ensured, move away from all of this dirty kind of fossil fuel generation, whilst also simultaneously saying, you know, the global north countries who have contributed the most to climate change and have extracted the most wealth from a lot of these global south countries need to kind of you know put their money where their mouth is and say we will help these other countries in reaching this point and that's the you know that's the difficult part of this it's the the continually ongoing conversation about what form that takes and how people are going to do it and i think that's that's kind of quite a tricky point i'm gonna stick with you and um look on this one because one of the other themes that that you'll have um, probably appreciated or, or, or heard <laughs> listening to the podcast coming out in quite a lot of the episodes was this idea that yes we need to try and understand individual countries and individual even local communities situations and try and work out what that network looks like and, and intervene in certain ways that make sense for those citizens but at the same time, we also have to consider everything on a global scale, because if you only look at one country at one time, you're essentially just pushing the problems um, around the world, particularly from um, those wealthier countries to those not so wealthy. And, and, we, and we touched on that specifically um, around this idea of, you know, moving stuff to other countries so it doesn't count in your in your uh, penalties and your fees, for instance, um, in terms of waste and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, briefly... What do we do about that? Is it, you know, is it about things like, you know, COP26 in Glasgow and having these global conversations or is it something more that we can really try and reckon with this individualistic as well as global conversations that both need to happen? This is this is a really interesting thing. And I think it's it's and you know, as a physicist, you're kinda of like, ooh, boundary setting. Now, here we go. Setting boundaries around our problem. That's quite a that's quite a nice physicist thing to do. Um I think this is the interesting thing about like what I've been kind of learning from the other teams at Carbon Intelligence, uh, specifically our scope three team and our strategy team, is this idea of well, the way that businesses look at their emissions is scope one, scope two, and scope three. And scope one is your emissions that are produced on site, scope two comes from the general uh, the electricity that you're purchasing and scope three is everything upstream and downstream in your supply chain and scope three makes up the vast majority of this and so and that's the thing that's missing from the framework you know at paris and the nationally determined contributions is it's nationally determined so things like you know as was mentioned in the previous episodes maritime transport air travel are just excluded so i think there's this conversation so like Net zero and like on a national level, let's talk about the UK and this net zero target by 2050. This trickles down to businesses and then businesses are saying, okay, if I'm going to actually work on this, I need to be able to, you know, the frameworks are saying I need to look at sticking to, you know, 1.5 to 1 degree C worth of warming from my kind of actions and then looking at my scope one through to three emissions. And then everything is so interlinked. It's this kind of massive nebulous web. And as soon as the dominoes start to fall, then it all kind of cascades outward. So as soon as, you know, one business starts saying, I'm going to either supply only myself from sustainable suppliers, or I'm going to work with my supply chain to become more sustainable, that feeds outwards. And I think that's that's the most difficult part of, of the national level kind of, you know, the COP26 is, is vital, absolutely vital this year coming up in November in Glasgow. And the way that the conversations happen is, is completely different to the way that kind of action happens on the ground and feeds down to kind of people and and kind of you know civil society at, at large 
And I think that's that's the trickiest thing to kind of resolve is, is there needs to be more kind of people taking responsibility for the things that lie between them. And, and, and you know, that's why the kind of the spirit of cooperation is so important in those contexts. And also listening to the countries that are saying, you know, we've seen sea level rise, we need adaptation, you know, money and all this kind of stuff. It's a, it's It has to be, you know, it's a listening exercise and an action exercise and a problem exercise. Um, and it's and it's difficult, you know, to solve all of these things simultaneously. Martin, I'm going to bring you in here because another another scale, shall we say, that we haven't yet discussed is perhaps one of uh, different kind of generations or ages or, or, or whatever you wanted, the past and the future and, and so on and so forth. And one of the, the themes or the main theme that we opened the series with was this idea of being a good ancestor and keeping future generations in mind when we're working on, on policy um, and on science. And, and obviously, I'm aware that I'm talking to one person who facilitates learning and another who's working with consultancy to encourage others to think of future generations. So you know, Martin, seeing some of the future generations that come through, you know, the School of Physics at Birmingham, I wondered how much of the idea of making things better for the future is part of learning, is sort of embedded in the way that we even talk about approaching, um, you know, problem solving. So first of all, to say, I think there is a, you know, there's a big responsibility that uh, us, uh, my my generation has in, in terms of um, leaving a good legacy for for next generation, which is in part why I find myself kicking around in in this sort of space. Um, and and if you look at uh, the kinds of legacy issues that we have, so climate change is certainly one of them. But you know, there's lots of legacy issues around the environment. Um, so. Uh, what we have done with nuclear power and the, and the kind of waste legacy there, there's a, there's a big job to be done around sorting sorting that out. Um, if what one looks at how we manage resources from the environment, then uh, equally uh, there's, there's a lot of responsibility that rests on on on, on my generation, and we. Uh, we've just talked about, and it was explored uh, in in earlier podcasts, so how, how we are exporting waste and have historically relied on other countries to deal with our waste problems for us. And, uh, and increasingly, um, those countries are saying, no, thanks, uh, <laughs> we, we don't need it. Uh, and that's a real real challenge that we need to, to wrestle with. And actually, you, you can't do these things individually. You can't just solve climate change. You've, you've got to think about how you do all of this and bring it all together. And that's you know the responsibility that we have in, in terms of shaping that thinking, the, the, what, what I, the, the generational bit is, is really interesting, uh, and I see. Uh, so, so Luke's generation is applying a colossal amount of pressure, rightly so, uh, on, uh, on on my generation, uh, and they are making the point that uh, we, we've had it good. Um, but we uh, we need to pick up the tab for having had it so good uh, over these uh, over these last decades. So I mean the kinds of learning I think in in universities doesn't directly nail those sorts of things, uh, and I think that's that's quite an interesting point. And whether actually the university environments could be more of. Uh, an environment where you explore these these kinds of issues, and I, I see some of those sorts of conversations and fora begin, beginning to be created inside universities. So, you know, they could be a platform for um, for positive change. 
Let's then flip it around and put it to you, Luke. So we've talked about, you know, younger generations going to university to learn and, and, and hearing about these different kind of ways of thinking and so on and so forth in their own building. Um, your job working in a consultancy is going out and speaking to people in business and saying, think about doing this and, and having that the influence perhaps from the other side. And particularly, as Martin said, coming from um, a different kind of generation, there's there's something there uh, specifically with you doing that job and people um, your age and also my age as well. Um, so you, thinking about that and, and thinking about the work that you do with businesses, you know, how much are they thinking about, you know, future ethics of the situation um, that, that they are in and that they're building? You know, we, we talked a lot in, in episode four with Grace Sue about the fact that, you know, is a lot of this just reputation building as opposed to, you know, um, you know are we greenwashing and, and so on and so forth? The fact that young people, you know, they want young people to, to work with them and have beliefs that align with them. But is it just to kind of get people in? What is it in terms of actual action? Tell me a little bit about how you felt when you were hearing all that and in response to Martin's answer. Actually, you know, the idea of asking yourself what impact you're going to have is exactly what led me down like the path that I'm on at the moment. I remember being sat in a lecture in, in second year and kind of like, it was like a mid, a mid degree crisis as I'm there like, what do I actually want to do? And that's what I really thought to myself about. And at that point I'd actually, it's, it's a, you know, a funny serendipitous kind of story, but like I'd answered a question of Martin's correctly in a lecture. He gave me a Birmingham Energy Institute um, notebook and I was looking for something to do over the summer. I was I was like, I want to get involved. I want to learn more about something outside of academia. And then I was like, I'll, I'll have a look at the Birmingham Energy Institute. And that's what's led me on this path to my MSc and then back into my job. Um, so I think people do consider those questions. I think physicists especially, like there's this natural curiosity. There's this natural kind of drive. And you think about, you know, the people who physicists look up to, it's like people who fundamentally change the understanding of the world as it kind of, you know, as it stood at their time. And I think that's, uh, it's both a daunting kind of challenge, but a good kind of, it means that you've got a really strong base that you're thinking about what you could actually achieve. And I think that's kind of, that was the decision for me is like, do I want to kind of stick with research and do something academic in theoretical physics? Or do I want to branch out and do something in the kind of the here and the now and and, and the climate crisis was, was kind of the space for me. But in terms of what you were talking about, kind of you know the the business side of things is super complicated and it is this kind of thing where it's it's give and take and for some people it's reputational and for some people um it is about solving these challenges and i think that's the good thing about kind of the work at ci is that we we the, the the consultants are you know they really do engage on that level in terms of actually making it about change and not just about meeting meeting targets for you know for the sake of appearances um and i think that's actually like the the businesses want to make these reputational changes and then the frameworks that they go to are, are, have have you know proper proper impacts like um so for instance there's a science-based targets initiative um which is all around you know well the clue is in the name science-based targets so it's all based on proper scientific modeling and they've just upped their their um their ambition so it's saying that you know people who sign up to the sbti um have to stick to i think it's one to 1.5 degrees worth of warming going forward and then you've got stuff like 
TCFD, which is a task force on climate-related financial disclosures. So that's, you know, the Bank of England using its power. And, well, Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England, is really really big on TCFD. And it's about basically, you know, the financial sector using disclosure to drive forward um, sustainable development and saying, you know, if investors can see what you're doing for sustainability and climate, then they will make better choices. And you come on to stuff like CDP, which is Karma Disclosure Project, GRES, the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. So all of these things, you you sign up because you want a certification because it looks good. I mean, it actually drives you to do meaningful things. Let me let me turn to talking a little bit about um, another of my my themes I enjoyed the most um, speaking to the guests about in this series, which was this: um, how do we sort of intersect science and policy making, or rather, science and just the idea of politics um, closer together? And there's there's two strands to this. There's the um, you know how do we get scientists, get physicists to be more engaged in policymaking processes and their expertise or ideas or so on and so forth being heard. But there's also another strand, um, which is around actually even just the idea that science is political and that being accepted and understood and engaged with by people who do science, as opposed to, um, you know, seeing it as this this separate thing that they, you know, they don't need to worry about the politics of what they're doing or or perhaps not feeling allowed to engage because, you know, that's I'm not allowed to do that in my job. Um, you know, Martin, let's go to you first. First of all, do you do, do you subscribe to this idea that we need to um we need to kind of have more of this intersection and and if so, kind of is this a, a practicable reality? There's an interesting balance that one needs to strike here, and and, and there is you know a good and strong tradition of um, scientists and physicists getting involved in uh, in national policy development, uh, not least of which is uh, when when we had a department for energy and climate change. Um, we, we had a chief scientific advisor who was uh, David Mackay, who was uh, was a physicist, uh, and he really um, helped shape. I, I think the thinking that we have r- right now, which is how do you, uh, and his approach was, you know, how do you use a set of physics-based skills and approaches? So in some ways, very reductionist uh, to understanding uh, how on earth we we deliver. Um, net zero, and what are the options that we have, and you know which which options are credible and which ones aren't credible. So he kind of gave us a framework for understanding that. And, and, and as we're saying at the moment, and as, as was discussed that um, around COVID, um, science provides very uh, important um, input into the decision making process. And, and I think in the discussions, it was well characterized that scientists are at the moment uh, well trusted and uh, that there is seen to be an independence of the scientific process from government and politics and policy. And that um, science therefore informs that political decision. And it, it becomes a very uh, important part of that decision-making process. It's evidence-based policy-making. Now, the dangers that you begin to create is that once scientists begin to step over those boundaries, although we have a responsibility to communicate that science and make make sure people understand the evidence and what it's based on, once it becomes opinion, and uh, that you know begins to draw you into kind of opinion and policy and all those sorts of things, you attach 
uh, a different uh, perception to that scientist. And my, my concern is, although all of this is, you know, public engagement is, is absolutely necessary and really, really vital, that one needs to make sure that the cleanliness of the scientific judgment and process is not uh, undermined by people going crank scientist or something like that. So uh, it's a diff- very difficult balance to strike, I believe. So Luke, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on this too. Um, so there's two points here. I think there's, I think the, the, one, the first thing is transparency. I think actually making all of the evidence, you know, that government receives um, open to the public and open for independent scrutiny um, is really important because it shows you, you know, it, it's an audit trail, you know, it, it shows you the, the, the chain of thinking and why a decision was made. And, and one hopes that people will be able to back that up and that it would be based on a, you know, on a, on a reason set of kind of principles and that the politicians, you know, who are elected are the ones who impose the politics on it, as opposed to the scientists kind of playing at, at politics. But then also, you know, when you introduce behavioural science, then it becomes more, more tricky, which is what we've seen with the pandemic in terms of how will people react to certain measures and, and all this kind of stuff. And then as the education side of things, one of the most interesting things for me as like an intellectual exercise outside of the, you know, the genuine horrors of the pandemic has been what it means for people to understand science. And, and you know, we, we see this with vaccine hesitancy and vaccine scepticism. And then also in terms of the evidence-based approach, um, what was happening with, with advice to government at the beginning of the pandemic where, you know, lockdown versus no lockdown, and then also the evidence around masks. I think the key thing is that the public, but also scientists are super fallible to this, is the idea that science as is an absolute. And I think what we always forget is that science is a learning process. You know, it's, is my, is my experiment replicable? When I repeat this, do I get the same results? What evidence is there to challenge my claim? How am I refuting this? Oh, the evidence is, you know, my, the evidence has changed and subsequently I'm changing what scientific consensus is. You know, it's this entire idea around what is a, a scientific theory versus an actual theory and and all of this kind of stuff that kind of falls into, into public discourse. And I think we've seen that play out and I think scientists need to be a bit more honest about that. I don't know if it's the scientists or maybe it's people in really high positions of authority when it comes to like science-based policy making, um, but being honest in terms of saying this was the evidence at the time, these were the assumptions we'd made, and then this is how we reacted to the aforementioned evidence and assumptions, and this is how we changed. I think that's a really important thing. And I'm not sure that has been communicated at best throughout the pandemic when it comes to, to, to some of the thinking. And so when it comes to climate change, I think it's different because we're not reacting on our feet. It's not an immediate, you know, reaction to events as they're occurring in the same way. Obviously, you know, the last two weeks, three weeks, four weeks have shown us that you need to be able to react, you know, in terms of the flooding and the heat waves and the fact that the sea was burning kind of shows that you need to be able to react immediately and, and you know, and solve that. Um, but I think, you know, there is more of a, a solid evidence base around climate uh, you know, climate science and, and the way that we need to transition. That means that we can have a far more open discussion, um, even if action is kind of two decades behind where it needs to be. Um, it still it enables the the kind of the the critical mass of evidence is there to enable public discussion in order to choose the best solution for a given set of people at a given time in a given area. Let me let me turn to talking a little bit about um, 
even the idea of solutions and, and solutions-based approach to, to climate change. So in our, in our final episode, I spoke to Farhana and Anne and, and they both argued really passionately that we have to stop exceeding the boundaries set by the natural world. Um, and physics research is often trying to solve problems, but like Alice highlighted in an earlier episode, some problems like, for instance, excess of emissions created um, during air travel can't be solved within the time frame that we're, we're looking at when it comes to climate change. And it's this sort of... Um, capitalism or, or startup mentality, innovation, whatever you want to call sticking plaster response. It doesn't really seem to be enough. I wondered what, what your response as, as physicists was to that. I mean, this is extraordinarily complex stuff. Um, and the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we work within the framework that we've got at the moment? because we haven't got much time and we've got uh, governmental structures and we've got intergovernmental structures and we've got agreed international frameworks for, for doing things. And one has to be, in some ways, I think, pragmatic that you've got to work within that framework and, and get the best out of it, um, which is probably closest to where I think uh, we are and need to be, that we a pragmatic approach is required in order to, for us to, to get to 2050 and do something of significance. Um, and, and indeed, you know, there are a number of technological solutions that one could, one could roll out. We don't have the whole answer right now, but we've got a lot of the answer. So we could get on and do uh, a great many things. Uh, and it's, you know, it's the political will uh, to do that. And actually, you know, this is this is not an easy thing for government, that they're having to balance a, a demand of the public, well, not just around climate change, but many demands of the public with, well, actually, if we make this big leap, what is the impact that it has for our economy? Uh, and, you know, if it ends up trashing the economy, you're not going to be able to do much on the on, uh, at the back end of that. So you've got to kind of find a way of inching forward on this, which means that you sustain your economy at the same time as delivering good things. The, the other approach is that you could say, well, let's, um, we, we need a different way of thinking about this. Uh, we, need, we need new structures and we need to think about how science operates in a, uh, in a different way. And, um, and uh, in the first podcast, there was this idea of community-based science, that you draw in lots of people into that scientific process. And, and truly, I think you know, there's, there's, there's room for that sort of thing. Um, but... At the moment, for me, that, that feels like a little bit of a luxury. We, we uh, should get there maybe longer term, but let's at least use the tools and mechanisms that we have right now uh, to, to actually do something rather than talk about doing something. A big question that needs to be answered is the stuff that was raised um, in the you know the, uh, the previous episode. And the idea that we are outliving our planetary boundaries is really um, kind of vital. I think, you know, people are... They, People in certain circles, those of us who are climate policy wonks, will will have come across Kate Rayworth's donut economics, and I that is something I kind of am intrinsically drawn to in terms of establishing a transition from the economy as it stands to something where we live with you know above a kind of a social floor where we meet all of our needs as human beings, but within a planetary boundary that means we aren't living outside of our means when it comes to kind of the climate and ecological emergency. And I think we need people to put their heads above the parapet and say, yes, we do need intrinsic systems change. We need to be able to say that we want to go from this thing as it stands 
hands to this thing and do that long-term thinking. And then if you kind of, you know, push it properly and, and transition it and, and establish a transition, you can do that in a way to minimise pain as, you know, as far, if not totally as possible. I think, you know, the ideas of, you know, a Green New Deal and a just transition um, are kind of intrinsic to that in saying that the system as it stands is driving us ever closer towards, you know, kind of catastrophe. And subsequently, you know, the system needs to change. You know, um, Anne last episode was talking a lot about the fact that we need to come, you know, overcome these institutional barriers set up at at an international level. And I think that's really important. But obviously there is a need for pragmatism as as Martin has outlined. And you need people along all stages of the spectrum to be putting pressure um, on a direction of travel and it means that there are ideas available like he, there are ideas for people to pick up to run with to explore and and that will drive us forward in the right direction so 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 for me what what, what i see happening is uh, there's a lot of people with very idealistic principles who, who uh, and i work with the city council here a lot who will say you know you can't do that it's not it's not completely net zero uh, but actually, we don't have a net zero solution right now. And so what you end up doing is nothing. And, and so, you know, I think the route through this is not idealistic principles. It's not, you know, going to Marxist principles or whatever. It's actually uh, being pragmatic and using a range of uh, ju- judgment principles to come up with a, you know, something which can appeal uh, to everyone as a way forward. Yes, we want to get to somewhere a little bit more visionary in the future, but actually, let's let's not stop um, action and process right now. So, so for me, um, I, I, you know, I, idealism, great, Luke. Um, <laughs> it's got it's got its place and time. I think there's something to be said though about, um, and, and this is me doing the the standard journalists sitting the fence thing, perhaps. Um, but I think there's something to be said about the existence of powerful ideas and the resonance of powerful ideas um, being a force for pragmatism. At the end of the day, so you know, I, I, I think one of the biggest a lot of the criticism towards so-called, as you say, idealistic Martin ideas um, is that, you know, they become these, you know, these these cages um, that don't allow us to make any movement. But at the end of the day, if we didn't have those ideas in the first place, would we even have the criticism there in order to make any movement at all? And, and so I think there's a balance to be struck where we do need to have um people with big ideas that perhaps don't have immediate solutions to try and shift culture, to try and shift um, a level of how people feel about things, Um, as well as, as you say, people there going, okay, this is the reality of making this work right now and we need to be able to do it within timeframes, specifically and particularly with the climate crisis, Um, but also for many big problems that we have more generally. So I, I, I think both of you are onto something here with your answers, not to not to just uh, play up to both of you, but I, I think it's an important point that it's not one or the other, right? One other thing that I wanted to mention was, so Martin just mentioned the idea that basically there aren't immediately available net zero solutions. There's also the problem that there are massive problem areas that will need a particular resource if they're going to decarbonize. And subsequently, we need to be able to think about the allocation of those resources to what they're most vital for. You know, hygiene is going to be really tricky to produce at scale. Um, Subsequently, if we want to be able to have, you know, 
kind of environmentally friendly steel maybe we should push hydrogen for that and use it less for other things and the same goes for carbon capture utilization and storage you know if we want to be able to have cement for instance do we still use ccus so that you know companies can kind of mop up their their kind of you know their historic emissions for instance is that a good allocation of resource that we have available i think that's a really interesting kind of question that needs to be to be answered there as well I've asked all the contributors this uh, this question um, at the end, and I'm gonna I want to ask you too. And almost all of them expressed positivity and and hope for the future, despite in some sense I think what might sound like quite um, I don't want to say negative uh, discussions, but we've highlighted a lot of challenges, shall we put it that way? Um, and I think all of us know that you mean the very need for podcasts like this and coverage of things like this is because we are in a tricky, a very difficult, and very complex situation. But um, as a final question for you both, how do you feel about the direction in which we are progressing? Are you optimistic, pessimistic, or something else entirely? Look, let's start with you. <laughs> it's this is yeah, this is a di- I find this so difficult. Uh, genuinely, um, it, it it varies with my mood. I'm sure you'll have heard you know stuff about kind of climate anxiety, and I think depending on how the news cycle is going, it it comes and it goes. I think I think the direction of travel is there uh the thing that i'm most uncertain about is speed and and whether we're looking at adaptation as much as we ought to given the way things are going as much as we are looking at mitigation i think cop when it comes to the, you know to the end of this year and cop 26 will be in glasgow that will be a turning point and and at that point we will be able to see you know how good or bad things are going to be as we try and solve these issues over the, the next 10 years. I think I share Luke's mood. <laughs> um, so so I, I, I go to a number of conferences which explore uh, how, how much progress we're making against the need to decarbonize. Um, and, and we're not making enough progress. And as you, as you see, we get closer and closer to deadlines. The curves get steeper and steeper. And it, what that means is it becomes phenomenally hard to, to reach net zero um, the longer we wait. Um, so, so in some ways, uh, yes, COP is a, is a really important moment. Um, we, we do know that um, you know, COP is not one event, but a series of events. And, and actually, it will be the COPs which, which drive the discussion going forward. This year's COP is, is really very important where people reaffirm their commitments. I, I, I think where I would be more uh, more optimistic, more hopeful, well, you know, so, so do I think we'll reach net zero? I think it's unlikely and that we'll need uh, some level of mitigation and, and adaptation. Um, where I'm more hopeful is actually the, the spirit of international collaboration that this has generated. Um, has uh, has not been seen uh, for well uh, some, some uh, unusual events in the in the last century uh, probably were good examples of it but uh, in, in this way in a kind of positive action way uh, this is this is unique and I think it's a real opportunity to actually to develop a new way of working internationally. And, and and sharing ambition, sharing innovation, sharing resource to do that, to, to, to make the planet a better place uh, in the future. 
feel like as an interviewer, you're always asking people difficult questions and they and they sometimes, you know, as Lucas done, so slightly apologize for for not fully answering it. So I think it's only fair that I probably give you my answer too, then to 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 um to make it fair. For me, it's all about responsibility for hope, right? And whether you get that hope by being a pessimist or you get that hope by being an optimist, I don't think it necessarily matters. I think it's about um what is it that each of us as individuals um, how can we reckon with this in the best way possible as opposed to putting our heads in the sand and not just hoping um, statically, um, but finding ways to point that to some form of dyna- uh, dynamism. That can be something that perhaps to some people would be seen as a negative approach, moaning about things or raising voices or campaigning. Um, but for others, that might be the feel like an optimistic action. And so for me, it really comes back to what what is your responsibility to hope? Um, and then how do you how do you point that in a particular direction, whether it's positive or negative? So there you go. Um, you don't have to worry about having an answer that's one or the other, because I haven't got one either. Um, Luke, Martin, thank you so much for coming and joining us and for picking apart our series um, that we've had over the last couple of episodes. It's been great to get that that reflective insight um, from both your perspectives, but also revisit some of those those great themes that we've had so they're not lost uh, just, to, just to one episode um, in existence of time. It's always good to kind of, at the end of the day, these things need to be talked about lots and worked through and, and looked at different angles because as you've both pointed out there's not just one answer to this really big question that we have so Luke Martin thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show thank you very much no, thank you my guests today were Professor Martin Freer and Luke Wheeler huge thanks to them both and of course all our brilliant contributors this series don't forget you can catch up with the whole series and the first series too, where writer and journalist Angela Saini explored societal issues and the role physics can have in solving big problems. Looking Glass is available wherever you get your podcasts. Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Rosie Stouffer. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The researcher is Fatuma Kera. Original music and sound mix by Alex Portfelix. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan and the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. Later this year, the IOP will be launching a series of conversations co-produced with local communities that will explore the role of physics in our everyday lives, discussing the implications for all of us in creating an equitable green future. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. 